0: If you can collaborate effectively, you can innovate faster and better. So innovation is the number one reason you would do it because you want to create that. You want to say that's our, our longer-term goal. That's why we're here. If the sound of a machine tool removing metal gets your blood pumping, then you are Metalworking Nation. This is Making Chips
1: You know, Jason, one of the biggest problems I have is when I'm quoting jobs is not knowing the commercial tolerances of the raw materials. How would that help you? Well, let's say, for instance, I'm looking at a print that calls for low carbon steel and that print tolerance for the thickness and width are plus or minus 10. If I knew the commercial tolerance of, let's say, half by two and a half rectangular bar stock, I wouldn't have to machine those surfaces. Oh, I get it. So what do you do? Well, most of and Krupp's commercial tolerances are on their website in their stock guides. It shows the commercial tolerance for both the thickness and width, which is really helpful in my quoting process. In addition, when I get my quotes back from my copper and brass sales inside people, they always have the commercial tolerances right there on the quote with every line item. It's like they anticipate my need and are providing me with information in a proactive way. That's great. So
2: our listeners should know that if they go to makingchips.com slash tolerances and search the Crop stock guide, they can download the
1: entire PDF with all of the tolerances. Yeah, it's great help. Hello, Metalworking Nation. Thanks for joining us today. We want you to know that this is is the podcast to equip manufacturing leaders. We are thrilled to have you with us today.
2: Yes, we are. And here's what is coming up in this episode. Jim and I are going to interview Sarah Caldicott. She's the grandniece of Thomas Edison. And we are going to interview her in order to inspire you to bring a culture of innovation to your manufacturing company.
1: It is a great, interview. Is a great she, interview. She was very inspiring to me. She taught me a lot, and she's an intelligent woman, and she has a lot of uh, good credentials.
2: So, I encourage all of our listeners to do two things with this interview think about how you can steal some of Thomas Edison's ideas for innovation to utilize at your manufacturing company, and two, how you can implement a concept like midnight lunch to engage your team and develop a culture of innovation. And with that, here's our interview. Hello, everyone. We're coming to you from San Diego, California. We are on site at the hardware store by Bylink. And this is Making Chips with Jim Carr and Jason Zenger. We're in the studio, actually, with Sarah Caldicott. And she has a very interesting story to tell. And she has a very interesting lineage. She's got some points that I think our listeners will really benefit from once we get into this interview. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So Sarah is actually the great grandniece of Thomas Edison. And I don't know if there's an innovator out there that is as popular as, as Thomas Edison. So and you know, as all of our listeners know, you know, manufacturing is about innovation. So this is going to be great to have Sarah on here and get her perspective on innovation. So in addition to being the great grandniece of Thomas Edison, she's actually owns her own uh, marketing consultancy firm called Power Patterns. And she went to Wesley College and the Dartmouth School of Business. And she also has experience as a marketing executive with PepsiCo and Unilever. So those are um, two great big companies that...
0: Spent 15 years in the Fortune 500 as an executive. So has definitely been a help in looking at innovation from the eyes of a business person. Yes. Not just a theorist or someone who's talking about innovation or researching it.
2: Yes. So you, you've actually walked the walk.
0: I have. Walked the walk.
2: So why don't we just get into it? I'm going to read a quote actually from your original book. So Sarah actually has several books out right now. Her latest book is called Midnight Lunch, which that's actually the reason that we are here at the hardware store by, by Link is to talk about the Midnight Lunch, which is a concept. Well, actually, why don't I just let Sarah explain briefly the concept of the Midnight sure. Lunch?
0: Well, there are a lot of things that Edison was doing in his Menlo Park lab and his West Orange lab that were revolutionary ways that he was engaging his workforce and tapping the best of the thinking of his employees. One of these practices was midnight lunch. What Edison would do periodically is come back to the laboratory at 7 o'clock after work was done, after the dinner hour was complete, and he would check on his experiments just to see how things were running. And he did this unannounced. No one knew he was coming on a given day or not. So he would show up. And see how his stuff was progressing from last time he would checked it. And then he would look at the experiments that were going on with the other people who were staying late. So there might be 8, 9, 10 people there on any given night. And he would have them describe their experiments to each other. He would have them share notebooks with each other. Because of course this is in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties and beyond. I mean this is all analog, right? Handwritten, notebook entries. There's no computers here. There's no podcasts. <laughs> ever no know. podcasts, right? No, ever, ever no, no podcasts, no, no making chips. No. All of your records are handwritten. So the hypotheses of the experiments, the control conditions, what you're hoping to prove or disprove, he wanted everyone to see those things. So they would share these notebooks, and then they would have conversations. And in this dialogue was tremendous insight, particularly relating to patterns. So these experiments could be about electrical uh, power distribution, they could be about the movies or the battery, any kind of recorded sound issues. So people had different areas of expertise. But it wasn't like, how much do I know that you don't know? It was more, what can I share with you that that might add to your learning? So this was going on from like seven o'clock to nine o'clock. Then everyone would kick back for an hour. Edison would order in food from a local tavern and they'd have sandwiches and beverages for an hour. They would just Talk about their personal lives, their families, what they were interested in, and get to know each other as people.
2: Did they sing songs, too?
0: They did sing songs. And in fact, there was an organ in the Menlo Park Laboratory. And Edison would play the organ very badly and sing very badly. And everyone, of course, would go right along with it. So this was a fun time. And it was kind of mixing the work with the social in a very unique way. So I think they were really focused on what, you know, what they were about, staying in the present moment. So at 10 o'clock, after an hour, they'd go back to work. And what was happening in these midnight lunch sessions, as they came to be called, in these five-hour sessions, was employees were becoming colleagues. So instead of just being a face or a number, as we might think today, people were creating friendships. They were understanding areas of expertise that they were not familiar with previously, and risked together. They asked questions together. So this midnight lunch practice became a way for Edison to clone his beliefs about collaboration. And they're very interesting and specific, and I think different from how we think of collaboration today. So for example, Edison believed that the small team was the unit of innovation. This is like eight people max. And his teams reflected that. This is the incandescent electric light. This is the movies. This is the batteries. These breakthrough innovation platforms that Edison developed were all from small teams.
2: We've got a listener base that you know they could be anywhere from five people to a thousand, yes, over a thousand. So you actually believe that even a five-person company they can they can do a midnight launch and they can bring these concepts to their company.
0: Absolutely, no question. So this this notion of the small team was very central. The second aspect of this was diversity. The people who were involved in this were from different areas of the organization. It wasn't just all the engineers or all the software de- developers or all the prototypers. This was everything. The physicists, the mathematicians, the acoustical scientists, the prototyping folks. I mean, it could be anyone.
2: Yeah, as a as a business leader, you always want to hire people that are not exactly like you. You know, I I always joke around with my employees and I said, if you know, if there's 20 of me running around here, (laughs) that is bad news for everybody. Right. And
0: actually, that was a real philosophy of Edison's. He wanted diverse thinking styles. Another aspect of Midnight Lunch that I think is interesting is that Edison believed it was important to have dialogue. It wasn't just about what he thought. It was about mixing it up. It was about debating and sharing so this is where i think sometimes leaders today can be the more dominant voice and it's valuable to get many voices
2: yeah i love in, the idea of of doing of debate and really hashing things out and i think in, in order to have to solve problems and to have trust amongst your leadership team you need to have debate and you need to encourage people to disagree with each other you know i think you know sometimes people tend not to you know, disagree with the boss right, because they sure. feel like their job is There's going to be in, in jeopardy. of, of risk. Or yeah. sure. but, but you should have that trust. As a leader, you should promote that kind of trust amongst your employees and they should be able to tell the leader, hey, you know, I don't, you know, respectfully, I don't agree with you on this, but let's try to hash it right. out. Let's talk about this. Well,
0: one of the things that was true in Edison's organization, this is an important collaboration principle that Edison had, was that there was a real level playing field. I mean, here is one of the great geniuses of all time, right? Rolling up his sleeves and eating pie with you. Right. Or having uh, a beverage or eating spaghetti or whatever they were having in these these lunches. And there are many photos of these. So he was trying to create what we would call today low social distance between himself and anyone else in the organization. So this is a non-hierarchical approach. This isn't about I'm six levels above you and oh, how nice you're four levels below and three levels below and whatever. However, the conversation through this discussion and dialogue, and you're an expert in electrical power, and you over here an electric uh, expert in photography. Hey, you can talk with each other without barriers. You can talk with each other without an agenda. I'm not keeping track. There's no human resources person here who's you know putting this in your file somewhere, right? So this was part of the openness of exchange, and I think we forget that part today too that you've got to encourage dialogue. It needs to be open dialogue. And we see a flattening of the organization today. We It isn't about 10 layers, 8 layers, 6 layers. You look at what's happening at Microsoft. You look at what's happening at General Electric. Very hierarchical organizations that are starting to flatten because the communication can't work now. You can't go vertically in the organization, right? All these levels to get approvals and all these levels to have dialogue. It's got to be more horizontal. Edison realized this even in the age before computers, right? Horizontal communication. So they were more like pods, communicating with other pods, these teams. So in a a smaller manufacturing organization or a mid-sized manufacturing organization, you can do this. This is ready at hand. This is right within your reach.
2: Now, so these were almost kind of companies within companies when you, when you had these teams that were responsible for something and that's how you, he, is that how he kind of made it a flat organization? You're like, you're the incandescent light team, but I need you to collaborate with the phonograph team or something like sure. that to exchange ideas.
0: And part of how that worked is Edison did a lot of cross training. So he had this similarity of cultures across these small teams. So they knew how to experiment. They knew how to have dialogue. They knew how to create this even playing field so he could stitch the teams together however he wanted. And people were thrilled with this. Wow, you mean I can work on the battery team too? I can work on, on the team that's creating motion pictures? And they knew they were involved with these disruptive innovations and it was exciting. Edison would take people from the lab and send them to become general managers in his manufacturing operations. Edison had over 200 companies that he established in the 62 years that he was a working person. Two-thirds of those companies were manufacturing operations. So he wasn't just thinking up this stuff. He was making it. And this is what the West Orange Laboratory was about. It was different from the Menlo Park Lab, which was roughly three acres in size. The West Orange Lab was about 15 acres. And it had manufacturing facilities right outside the door of the lab. So you could make the tools in the lab, literally go install the equipment 10 minutes later. And he did that. Edison was not a stranger to setting up lines, traveling to other manufacturing facilities, say, hey, let's try making X. So today it might be shocking to have a CEO or a CIO or a CTO show up in a manufacturing plant. Definitely not a surprise for Edison to show up. He was a kinesthetic learner. He could almost think in three D. He could imagine how something could be made even as he was drawing it in his notebooks.
2: So if we were to take this concept of a midnight lunch to your small company. So I'm thinking that there's a couple different reasons why you would have a midnight lunch. The first one would be innovation. Another one would be problem solving. Sure. What and, and what what else would culture So what Just would be the other reasons to, to dialogue?
0: Creating okay. dialogue.
2: Okay. okay, so how would How would Jim and a lot of our other listeners get started with doing a midnight lunch?
0: Well, first of all, it's the perfect size because I said, you know, the eight, nine, 10 people staying after hours. So you're you're not busting the walls, you know, 15, 20. This is just over a handful of people. So already you're at the right number. So what I would say is pick a night. All right, so next Thursday, we're going to have a midnight lunch and there's no preparation required. All I would like you to do is just tell me what you're working on, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, and be ready to share it with everyone. We'll be standing at your workstation or standing by the machines that you're working with, and we're going to watch some process that you're evaluating, some challenge that you're evaluating right now, a difficulty that is in your world with you know client, whatever. You can pick whatever the topic is. I want everyone to have a sense of what you're working on, and we're going to have dialogue about it. So the key outcome is not only the sharing and this sort of low social distance that I described before, but the ability to see patterns. People are going to go, Oh, you know, I encountered a similar problem about a year ago and it was the X and the Y and the Z. And you know how we solved it? It was the A, B, C. And you know, you're, you're close to that. You're, you're almost there and you could do it in such and such a fashion. So these are the breakthroughs, right? These are the things you did not expect to come out of this.
2: Yeah, like you might have one operator say, you know what, I was drilling that Inconel material and I was having this chip evacuation problem and I solved it doing it that way. And all of a sudden the light sparks and all of a sudden you've powered through that job that much quicker.
0: So innovation is, I'd say, reason number one, because collaboration for Edison was the on-ramp to innovation. If you can collaborate effectively, you can innovate faster and better. So innovation is the number one reason you would do it because you want to create that. You want to say that's our longer term goal. That's why we're here. The second reason would be to create a foundation for collaboration to exist. In my book, Midnight Lunch, I talk about the four phases of collaboration. We kind of think of it almost in an amorphous way, right? Okay, so these people in a room, they're talking, oh, they must be collaborating. Well, no, not necessarily. In an Edisonian collaboration, the very first stage is to create the capacity to collaborate, which is that small team size, that diversity. So let's start creating the baseline for collaboration to exist in our organization. That would be reason number two. We're just going to seed it. We're going to start it. And then the third reason would be you really want to create context of thinking around the problems you're looking at, not just here's the linear solution. Here's the low-hanging fruit solution. It's, wow, let's look at the six or seven things that might actually touch on this problem, they're going to help me expand my framework of thinking. Midnight lunch, I talk about the notion of discovery learning. Collaboration is discovery learning. It's not get out the spreadsheets, you know, get your, your pens and check off the check boxes. It's not a task orientation. It is a context orientation. Getting your people to think like that creates tremendous speed. As leaders, we always think, oh, you know, if I can check off these items from my to-do list, I am making so much progress, when in fact, this is what Midnight Lunch will help you do, because when you have context, you're starting to look at the problem from multiple angles, not just one, and as you can get these muscles exercised, you start to move through the challenges faster. Edison pioneered six industries disruptive industries that are all with us now in 30 years with no plastic and no computers. Six industries in 30 years valued at over $500 billion. So that's a really good day, right? That's a really good day. It would be great to have even just a little slice of that. So if you can get your people thinking in this way, it has revenue implications. The phase two of the four phases is context. Developing context around the problem. And this is asking questions, developing hypotheses, running through prototypes. If that's part of your business model, and this can be physical 3D prototypes or it can be virtual prototypes. It could even be a story. Hey, let's, let's tell the story of this problem or the story of the solution in a better way because then it's a whole socialization process that grows out of that.
2: We're we're not exactly doing a midnight lunch, but we are trying to bring a um a methodology for having these types of meetings and I'm getting some ideas from what Sarah is talking about and I and I believe it's going to bring bring some context to, you know, to what we're trying to accomplish. This has been part 1 of a two-part interview with Sarah Caldicott. Tune in next week for part 2 on the next episode of Making Chips.